post-colonial space. I'm Masood Raja, and what follows is an excerpt from one of my recent live class sessions in which we discussed Ngugi Chiango's famous essay, Creating Space for a Thousand Flowers to Bloom. Now, I do have a full lecture already available on the same topic, so I thought I should make this also available as a sort of a supplemental discussion to the earlier conversation. If you are interested in the earlier version of this, I will post the link in the description and you can always watch these two in conjunction. That's all I have to say. Thank you so much and I hope you enjoy listening to or watching this conversation about, about Ungugi Chiango. We'll be talking about Ungugi Chiango and I'd briefly introduce you to him to you and you also have a video on this particular essay. So pretty much if you watch the video and if you read the text, uh, you can decipher where we are going. Now keep in mind that the question still is the question of language, the question of identity, and what constitutes African literature is kind of the main topic of his essay as well. And things are kind of becoming referential because these people are if not referring to other scholars, they are also kind of speaking about the same idea. And the question that he is trying to invoke, and he mentions that in the essay, that this is something that comes up in every African literature conference, and that is the question of whether or not African authors should write in their own languages, right? That's a big question that comes up. And then he gives us a reason for why it is important to write in African languages. And then what are the problems? And if, in his view, we could overcome those problems, what would be the cultural wealth that could be gained from it, both in Africa, but also in the world, right? So that's kind of his argument. And there is one thing important to learn in this essay that he gives us three kinds of examples of African storytelling and African writing. And that's crucial. It comes up pretty much in all of African scholarship. And that is his idea that the first and the foremost most is when he talks about that the original tradition of African storytelling is the oral storytelling tradition. And that he suggests was an established tradition of storytelling and to a point that in his region there used to be a poetry festival, a competition, people would come from all over the country to take part in it. Then of course there is just like any other culture, there was folklore tradition, traditions of the stories of the ancestors. So that cultural core is similar to Europeans, right, who had their folklore traditions as part of their early stories, which you see in the Grimm's fairy tales and others where people went and collected them. Similarly, if you look at other cultures, South Asia, India, for example, has its own oral tradition. Part of it is religious stories, right? Mahabharata, right? If you go to other religions, Granth Sahib in Sikh tradition was originally orally told, right? And then recorded. So just like those traditions, those cultures built up on that. And the reason those traditions continue to live on is because they have been 
appropriated into the written production of literary arts, right? In English, right? If you go pre-Chaucer, stories were mostly oral. And what he's saying is that what I'm suggesting in African context is pretty much the same thing, that let's go and collect or retrieve our original stories and then write them in native languages, right? So that would be the oral tradition and recording it. The second way of writing in Africa that he talks about is the African writers who write in the language of their colonizer. Now, what he's then saying is that what's happening in that process is that they are mobilizing their own cultural tropes and their own cultural stories. Think of things fall apart, right, which we'll be reading. So many times, if you have read it in high school, the teachers would tell you what's the importance of the proverbs, right? What do you learn about the, the local culture there? So what he's saying is that when these writers are writing in English, they are bringing raw materials from their own culture, their own cultural storytelling, but they are enriching the English literature. There is no corresponding thing happening where we bring the knowledge from Europe, from America, and write a novel in our own language and then enrich our own language with that. And there should be nothing wrong with that. And the third group that he talks about are the people who write in African languages. And that's where the problems occur. And the problems are many. First of all, in one country, if you go to Kenya or, or Nigeria, there could be multiple languages, multiple cultures. So obviously you don't have a huge audience. You probably do not have a printing press or a publisher who will be willing to publish your work. And then the question of orthography. Sometimes there is no typeset. Sometimes there is no script. You might even have to invent the script. But his idea is that if we could do that, if we could create literature in our regional, in our national languages, then we can retrieve and preserve our own customs, but also enrich them by the knowledges that we bring from Europe, just like we Africans enriched European art as well as enriched their writing and their storytelling. And then he gives you an example, a really interesting example that, you know, there is an imbalance in how languages are treated in international studies, but also in literary studies. The European languages, including Americans and others, have a definite advantage to a point that people can call themselves hey, I specialize in West African literature. I've met people like that. And you ask them, well, have you, do you know any of the West African languages? And they would basically tell you no. And what he's saying is that it's very easy for European and American scholars to claim a certain degree of expertise in African cultures without knowing a single language. But we cannot do that. You know, Masood Raja cannot come to America and say, I want to be a professor of American literature, but I've only read American literature in Urdu, in Urdu translation. No one will take me seriously. So what he's saying is that these inequalities already exist. The idea is to create a word, a literary word, in which every language has its place, its respect, is granted that respect, analogy that he's using is that of a garden, right? That it should be a garden of languages where every language has its own patch and then they enrich each other. 
that is his idea now do keep in mind that ngugi is pretty aware of the debates of african literary studies right he is on the side of the group like chinwezu and others who believe that it is essential for african writers to create works in their own language for the national project to give people something from their own culture in their own language but also to preserve african cultures now ngugi consciously makes that decision right in 1977 he stops writing in english and starts publishing his works in gikuyu his first novel that was published in 1970s was devil on the cross which he publishes in gikuyu but an interesting thing happens when he publishes that novel and uh, the local publisher was very reluctant to publish it it was a tiny little press but you know they publish it and then the novel becomes a phenomena people start reading it people read to each other in bars over campfires so this written novel about a female character eventually becomes a folk tale as it is people memorize it and tell it now it wasn't ngugi's first foray into native language writing right before he writes the novel actually he wrote the novel in the prison and the reason he was in prison was because he was part of a local leftist theater group community theater group who would write plays in gikuyu and then stage them at in different villages and small towns as a community theater which was deeply political and he was arrested for one of those political plays and put in prison for i think a year and the legend is that he wrote the novel while he was in prison on toilet paper and then smuggled it out when he was released that's kind of an apocryphal story so what he's talking about is really important because in one of his other works he talks about what role does language play in our lives right any language but native languages and others so the first and simple role of language in his view is that it it tells us about the mode of production in which we exist who does what and what is their role in a given society the second role which all of us understand is communication that it allows us to communicate with each other through a shared code which is language but the most important function of language what he talks about is language as a carrier for culture that language is in is what in which we gather and inscribe and collect our cultural heritage right and then pass it on to next generation now if you if you keep in mind that role of language where you pass your cultural heritage through language through writing to the next generations if you live in oral cultures if you disrupt that cycle in two or three generations people will forget where they came from because they will have no access to those stories and part of it was accomplished in the colonial educational system itself ngugi would give you an example that's from his book that when when um, village children went to the colonial school the government school they were taught english 
but when they were taught english there were quite a few things happening in their mind and we will see that in the poems that we'll be reading in the next week first of all their aesthetics things that they liked or aspired to or preferred was being rewritten i mean after all if you are a kid in africa studying the daffodils you have never even seen a daffodil right but if you're being taught to appreciate and love the daffodil eventually that would become the flower that you would like because hey british poet wrote about it and your teacher taught it so what was happening in the school was you were internalizing the aesthetics the beauty or what constitutes as good literature in that school which was english then what the teachers would also do is they would give in each class they will give one kid a little token in the morning and they will say pass it on to anyone who speaks any dialect so all regional languages were considered dialects like gikuyu yoruba kaswali anything else and so the kids would pass it on to the next kid they hear speaking yoruba or anything else so by the end of the school session you know the teacher will ask who has the token and the kid who will give it to him he will then ask him who gave it to you who gave it to you so there'll be a chain and those students will be brought forward and publicly humiliated for having spoken their own native language on the school grounds now what that did was it made the experience of speaking your own language a humiliating experience psychologically then you already know that english is better but you're also learning that my own language is inferior and the children would then internalize that in that school system so eventually when they went for studying abroad or studied in the british system along with studying that english is the language of power if we learn it we'll get a job they were also learning a disdain of their own culture right psychologically also and that is the issue that he's trying to address here how to create literary tradition especially in a language that has not had written scripts so that people while they are working in the world while they are reading british or french literature also develop an appreciation of their own culture their own history and their own literary tradition so that they can have this balanced identity in the world that is what is at stake now if you look at for example in india the reason i keep going to India is that of all the British colonies India was the most complex the most complex because it was multi-religious but also it had several developed written scripts literary traditions song traditions dance traditions right performative traditions so in a culture that had 200 years of urdu literary production persian literary production 2000 years of hind Hindustani Sanskrit and then Hindustani and Hindi literary production Tamil literary production coming from the south think of it that rich culture still it was possible for the british to create a huge constituency of natives whose sensitivities become english whose politics becomes english who start privileging english accent english language a fair complexion as better than their own I mean I don't know if th- those of you who have Indian heritage ask your parents even now in India and Pakistan 
on TV, you will see ads for these face creams, which are allegedly supposed to make you look whiter. But think of that culture, a culture so rich in written scripts and rich in written traditions, right? If the British could overwrite its sensitivities and its sense of self, what must have happened in cultures that didn't have a written tradition and where you could destroy the oral tradition in one or two generations? So that is what is at stake when people like Ngugi Chiango and Chin Zhu talk about retrieving, writing, and preserving their own cultural history because it is intimately connected to questions of social and political identity. If you, you guys are too young, if you look at the African-American production in the late 60s and early 70s, a lot of the stories were origin stories. These were people, historians, authors, trying to write an origin stories, right? So the stories would start in Africa where someone was captured. Then they will tell the story of the passage as they were brought as slaves. Then their lives as slaves, struggles. And the reason behind that was that without that narrative, how would these people, after 150 years of having been deracinated from their original, how would they have an identity without knowing where their ancestors came from? So that's the same struggle. When you read Bessie Head's story, which we'll be reading with Pibetic's story, so you'll see the Pibetic story the two poems deal with the issues of what happens to you when you go to Britain, get educated, and in the process develop a disdainful view of your own culture. It's a dialogue between a husband and a wife. But when you read Bessie Head's story, she is writing a fictional account of creation of a tribe. But the reason she's writing it so that 200 years from now, if someone reads it, they will know, oh, this is how this tribe came to be. This is their origin story. And remember how crucial origin stories are. I mean, if you have read your Bible, if you've read your Vedas, right? If you have read the Quran, all of these have origin stories and people collectively and individually based their identities in them. America, I mean, in high school, in elementary school, all the stories that you read about the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, the Declaration of Independence, these scripts enable you to construct an American identity. If they were completely removed, then it would be easy for anyone else to come and teach you or force upon you another identity since you don't have any frame of reference. So it takes us back to what Fanon taught us, right? what happens psychologically under colonial situations. So all of these essays that we are reading, right, they're kind of interconnected. My hope is that as you read them and wade through them, by the time we reach towards the end, you would realize yourself that you are looking at things in a more complex manner. And I know most of you are going to become doctors and engineers and probably will never have to worry about literary theory and all. But I mean, you can admit to yourself, it's not to me, that having that kind of complex worldview can still enable you to perform a different kind of identity in the world, a more an identity more attuned to the world in which we live. Right? So you can already tell, see, you all are now becoming subtle to these shifts, right? That you can already tell that even though he uses the word Kaliban there in that essay, here is where it note that the new Kaliban comes to Prospero's linguistic high table with an offering 
a linguistic bottle of wine, so to speak. Thus, this tradition has tried to forge an identity by borrowing very heavily from African languages, that is, from the rich harvest of orature as developed by African languages over the years. So he's trying to tell us that the African comes to the European language with a basket full of its own gifts. Here is what you can infuse in your storytelling and your stories will get better, right? But there is no corresponding movement happening that enriches the African languages. But you can already tell that his view is there is more room in it for hybridity and for accepting European influences as long as they enrich and not wipe out the local traditions. And if you recall when we read the Achebe essay, which we'll be reading again, he talks about another way in which Africans had informed European art, and that was that the introduction of the African masks and the artwork from two tribes from the same region is what, when they are introduced into European exhibitions is what launches cubism and eventually the modernist art, right? And so he's also accounting for the contribution of African art in the modernist movement. Ngugi is saying is that while we are doing that, while we are enriching European stories and European languages, we should also, if we write in our own languages, then we can borrow the forms from Europe, the modes of representation, maybe some vocabularies, and that would enrich our languages. That's his argument. Now, if you look at cultural production, let's say in India, the novel enters India around the same time as it is rising in Europe. Uh, I mean, think of 1876, I think, is when the first Urdu novel is published. I have it on my shelf. Now, these are people who are writing in their own language. They know a little bit of English, right? Novel as a genre didn't exist in India. We had dastans, right? Epics. But they learn, oh, this is how middle classes are reading in Britain. So they take the genre, they take the form, and then they start writing in their own language. Now, in Urdu, novel is an established genre of writing. Similarly, short story, they take it from the British tradition, they, they name it Afsana. And uh, in Hindi, I mean, the stories, narratives did exist already. You know, but they then they mix their own knowledge of storytelling and the Western tradition and create a richer genre in Hindi, in Tamil, right, in Malayalam, in Urdu. So that is exactly what he's suggesting in the African context. So that's it. I hope this is useful to you and I hope you can make use of it either in your classes or for your own learning. I do highly recommend that you read the essay. And on the other hand, I also hope that you're doing well in this pandemic and taking care of yourself and everyone else around you. Please continue to do so. And I will now see you next time with some other topic of conversation. Until then, stay safe. And as always, peace and love.